There are many arguments for and against abortion that you've probably heard. How about the ones you haven't? College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, where we are liberating the liberal arts and ransoming the captives of a broken system, namely broken college. There is a better way. You can find it at the Magnus Fellowship. Go to magnusinstitute.org. Learn about the fellowship. Doesn't matter who you are, where you went to college, where you live. Join the fellowship today. It's free. It always will be. You can become a fellow at magnusinstitute.org. You're going to be glad you did. Join hundreds and hundreds of like-minded fellows pursuing wisdom under the light of great texts in live and interactive courses with some of the greatest minds in liberal learning. Magnusinstitute.org, do it. In today's episode, we're dipping back into a great course taught in the Magnus Fellowship by AMI Senior Fellow, Dr. Timothy Ferlin. course was called Bioethics and Aquinas, where he discusses beginning of life, end of life issues, what is life, really from a philosophical uh, standpoint. And so, so much of the abortion debate is reduced to tribalism and sloganeering in a way that's really unproductive. Uh, perhaps we could try to understand arguments on both sides of the spectrum in both camps at their best. Dr. Ferlin does an amazing job laying out the arguments really for and against abortion at their best so we can understand them from their philosophical roots. And so if you think you've heard all there is to be heard on the abortion discussion, I promise you haven't just, just give this one at least five minutes and your mind's going to be blown. Stick with it. Enjoy it. This is Dr. Timothy Ferlin on the beginning of life. Maybe let's start to talk about abortion. I, obviously, a very important topic. Um, I just want to kind of walk through kind of where the debate was, where it's at today. Um, you know, what I consider the best way to think about this, this debate, uh, how this debate might be transferred, how it might be transformed in the near future through technological developments like artificial wombs. I think artificial wombs may really transform this entire conversation. You know, as we've been arguing, right? So in the second class, we really argued that if there is a substantial identity between who you are now and who you were in an earlier stage, right? As a zygote, as a embryo, as a fetus, as an infant, as a teenager, as a young adult, right? Then there are sound reasons, right? To reject the intentional killing of any human being, right? Uh, I think we all share that very common considered judgment that it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. I think that is widely shared. You might run into some utilitarians and might reject that. They might say the principle of utility demands that you kill an innocent person in some circumstances to maximize utility. But for the most part, most of us are going to have, everybody has some kind of notion of wrongful killing. And I think most of us have the idea that it's it's wrong to intentionally kill a normal adult human being. And we argued that if there is a substantial identity between normal adult human beings and uh, going all the way back to substantial change at the moment of conception, you know, and then after that, everything else is just a matter of growth and development. If you are one single substance that undergoes growth and development, right, um, all the way until your biological death, which we're going to talk about towards the end of class tonight, then, um, yeah, to kill a zygote, an embryo, a fetus, 
a, a person with advanced dementia and a PVS state is, is the same as, as killing a normal adult human being, right? So we talked about that argument. I want to continue to develop that as we go forward. So as we saw, I think the arguments that are used to justify embryo research, embryonic stem cell research, embryo selection through BGD, I think that the most common arguments have to do with the advancement of biomedical uh, knowledge and the prevention of suffering from genetic disease, right? I think both of those justifications that we've talked about are very difficult to apply to the topic of abortion, right? Why is this? Because abortion does nothing at all to advance our knowledge of fetal development. We don't learn anything at all about fetal development, embryology, developmental biology by, by killing these children. Or just it doesn't advance biomedical knowledge at all, okay? And secondly, the vast majority of fetuses or children who are aborted are perfectly normal, right? The vast majority of abortions are elective abortions, and these children are not diseased. They don't have any kind of, of you know, serious illnesses. It, it, often it's just a matter of preference or convenience or whatever it is, right? So if the standard consequentialist utilitarian argument employed to justify embryonic stem cell research or embryo destruction has little application to the issue of abortion, then how might this be defended, right? If those, those other justifications uh, fall short or, or not really effective at all, okay? So, right, let's just talk about some important biological facts, right? Just looking at contemporary embryology, developmental biology, so I would say back in the 1970s, you might hear some abortion advocates trying to argue that abortion did not involve an act of homicide, that it did not involve an act of killing. I don't know anybody who holds that view today, but even the most ardent pro-abortion people will acknowledge that this is an act of homicide. This is the act of killing a human being, right? Back in the 70s, you know, before ultrasounds and, and other things, people might say they're removing protoplasm, you're removing tissue things like that. Nobody believes that. I mean, that's been blown completely out of the water today, right? Everybody's going to acknowledge this involves an act of homicide, of killing a human being. Some might even go far to say that it involves killing a person. So Judith Jarvis Thompson and her famous defense of abortion will concede that, that fact, that this is the killing of a person, but that it is, uh, she will, she'll make another important point there, that there is not even a right to kill, but there is a right to extraction. And I've been really fascinated by this. So if you look at like really the most sophisticated theoretical defenders of abortion, people like David Boonin, uh, Jeff McMahon, Judith Jarvis Thompson, right? Uh, Marianne Warren, they will say not that there's a right to kill or a right to terminate, but there's a right to extraction because there's not a duty to carry the child to term, right? So Judith Jarvis Thompson and her famous article in defense of abortion, she has that analogy of the violinist being hooked up to the violinist. And she seems to regard being hooked up to the violinist for nine months as like a supererogatory action that goes above and beyond what morality might require of you. She says if it were nine minutes, then yes, you would be required to, to stay there for nine minutes to keep that person alive. But nine months is just too long or nine years, right? Uh, so she seems to, she says, yeah, you could do that, but you're not required to do so by morality. So you can disconnect the violinist. And she seems to think that the act of removing the child from a woman's uterus is analogous to disconnecting the violinist. I, I think that's disingenuous because, you know, by uh, removing the child, right, what's really going on is you're, in many cases, you're stabbing the child to death. 
or you know you're injecting the child with poison with you know sodium chloride or something like that. So um, you know it's it's not really an accurate description of what's really going on there. Right? And this comes up when we talk about the principle of double effect later on as well, and and really giving an accurate description of your intention and what is it you're really doing there, right? What is your intention? What is your aim, right? So um, let's just talk about some basic biological facts here, right? So if you look at um, you know, any biology textbook, right? Uh, you know, you look at any standard biology textbook, right? They're going to say that a human embryo with its full complement of human chromosomes comes into being at fertilization, right? Every single biology textbook in the world is going to say this, right? Human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an egg to form a single cell, which we call a zygote, right? This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. That's a biological fact, right? The development of a human being begins with fertilization, right? You can look at one text after another, right? Once you or I, or he or she has been implanted in the uterus and the possibility of spontaneous twinning has ended, right? the unified development of this new organism uh, can be very closely followed by modern uh, you know, developmental biology, by embryology, uh, and through the use of tools like sonograms, ultrasounds. Um, and I don't have really any doubt at all, right, that there is an integrated self-directed organism that is growing through these very well-known distinct stages, and that if all goes well, a child will be born who will one day be able to have a conversation just like the one that we are having today. Any thoughts about that? Any questions? I had one thought that, um, so one of the things that was mentioned earlier, it was talking about um, problems with with uh, doing selective abortions or ba based on um, genetic information and, and stuff like that. So I think it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about here too. Um, it's, my comment is that sometimes that information that you have that they're they're very certain about is not so accurate and we experienced this with our our first child um the physician recommended the triple screen test and and long story short it came back as a positive test and all of a sudden they're talking about abortion options and all of this and we're like whoa 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 we're, we're catholics that's not even going to be an an option and then i read about it and saw the high level of false positives with that test. And then I wondered why the heck did we even get this test in the first place? Yeah, so, and it turned out she was, our, our daughter's fine. There was nothing wrong with her. Wonderful. So can't there, there, there can be wrong information and you can act on that. I, it made me wonder how many people have died because of that. Just yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great point, William. Later on, we're gonna talk about so-called brain death. And I have a colleague here in Boston who works at the Spalding Rehab uh, Hospital, which is one of the top in the world for brain injuries. And uh, he was telling me that the, the rate of false diagnosis or misdiagnosis for brain death is as high as 40%, right? That's a really high number, right? That, that should give all of us a lot of pause, right? That these people are being classified as being you know, brain dead and they're being sent off to these, these care facilities, right? Where they don't receive any kind of treatment or therapy or physical therapy or uh, cognitive uh, interventions, and of course they don't get any better because they're not receiving any medical treatment, right? Um, so, 
That was a pretty sobering, eye-opening experience for me. And I, I've heard many stories like the one that you just told us as well, William, um, where, uh, yeah, I mean, there was there was a misdiagnosis and, and thankfully the child uh, is is alive and well and with us now. So, um, so I want to kind of trace this back as well to our earlier discussion about Cartesian body self dualism. I think this is another way to help uh, to helpfully frame this issue again. I think only right with the most extreme determined dualist could really evade the conclusion that the organism developing in his or her mother's womb deserves respect and is a human being and is, is a person, right? Um, I think if dualists conclude that the unborn child does not deserve respect, they're going to have to face a really difficult challenge here. I think the challenge they're going to have to face is pinpointing the exact occurrence of the substantial change that makes a child before birth and an adult drastically different sorts of beings. And I've pushed people on this point. I've pushed people really hard and I've never heard a plausible response as to when that substantial change takes place after conception. Right? People do a lot of hand-waving. They'll say, well, it's this sort of you know magical mystery moment that takes place at eight weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks. And you, know, you really push them for empirical evidence for this, right? Let's pinpoint exactly when that substantial change takes place during gestation. I've yet to hear anybody give a plausible, let alone compelling response, okay? I think if you are a consistent dualist, you're gonna to have to say that it would have to be an extra biological event, which is another problem for them, right? If you're going to say that the mind begins to occupy or possess or invade uh, as some sort of extrinsic principle that's coming from outside the organism, right? And then when it does possess or invade or inhabit the body, the brain is activated and sentience becomes possible, right? I think there's another problem that, that comes up here is that even the arrival of the mind was already predetermined from the very start by the zygote's genetic constitution, going all the way back to that single cell inner mass, okay? That was always in the cards. And that emergence, right, in the sense of second act, right, in the sense of manifesting those, those capacities, right, the same way that you and I are having a conversation right now, right, in English, when I go to bed tonight, right, I'm obviously not exercising, when I'm sleeping, I'm not exercising my capacity to speak English when I'm sleeping, or if I end up in a PBS state or something like that, right, I would say that these children are, they possess those capacities in that same sense of first act, even though, right, they, they, those rational operations are not going to be manifested at that point, they will eventually if, if they're given the proper environment and allowed to, to grow and to develop, uh, they, they will manifest those, right? And that will be determined from the very start by the zygote's genetic constitution from the moment at which they, they begin to exist after fertilization has come to an end, right? So I would say that this arrival of the mind or consciousness or sentience is merely one stage in what is a gradual self-directed development. It's not coming from some extrinsic ghost or spirit that's it's invading the body, right? And this does not represent a radical new departure. It represents the next logical step in the unfolding of the zygote's genetic constitution. Right? Uh, the beginning of sentience is 
a program step and does not mark a substantial change. So I would say then that the moral status of an adult and of a very young human being must be the same, right? There's one single substance that persists and that endures in and through change, right? You and I are the same sort of being. We are the same being, right? Simply at different stages of development. So I would say when you were an embryo at your conception or at your implantation in your mother's womb, or when your organs began to form, or when you attain the ability to survive outside the womb, and that's around 38 weeks, natural viability is around 38 weeks. We've pushed medical viability back to about 18 weeks now, and we keep pushing it back further and further. One thing I find really fascinating in, in this whole debate about abortion too, and the jurisprudence surrounding it is that, you know, Roe v. Wade put such a focus on viability as the basis for moral status. And I always found that to be very, very strange, right? Because viability depends upon medical technology, which is constantly changing, right? That your moral status and your dignity would depend upon the state of current science, right? So let's say a couple of years from now, we're able to push viability back to 15 weeks or 13 weeks or 12 weeks or 11 weeks, right? Or all those children that are being killed at, at you know, 15 weeks now, are they suddenly gaining moral status or gaining dignity because of developments in medical technology? Or let's say you're living in the, the global South. Let's say you're living in sub-Saharan Africa where medical technology is extremely limited and you're not living in a place like Boston where you have, you know, some of the best, you know, hospitals in the world, All right? It seems like viability there is going to depend upon just where you're born and what, what, you know, time era you're born into and what culture you're born into and whether you're living in a poor country or a wealthy country or a poor family or wealthy family. It seems really strange that your moral status, your dignity would depend upon such contingent factors. Okay. And I would say that, um, let's just keep going here. Right. So we say, you know, or when you were born or when you started school or when you went to college, uh, it was you all along. Right. Albeit you were growing, you were developing, you were unfolding in line with this remarkable self-directed genetic endowment. It was you all along. Robert George and Christopher Tolleson have a good book called Embryo. I highly recommend it. And the opening scene in that book is uh, it's a story about a group of embryos being rescued from a fertility lab in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. In 2005, one of the young, one of the uh, embryos later on was given the name Noah. They talk about Noah being rescued from the flood uh, by these, these uh, I don't know, the paramedics or whoever. Somebody rescued these embryos from the, the fertility lab. And thankfully, this, this one embryo was implanted and, and uh, eventually was, was born and was given the name Noah. And they say it was, it was Noah all along. There was not, you know, some substantial change. Right? He, he was one in the same substance and one in the same person throughout that entire process. Right? So let's just say if your mother opened up a family photo album and pointed to an ultrasound photograph taken when she was pregnant and said, you know, this was you at six months. Right? Parents do this. I mean, I've, I've, we have photos of, of my daughter, very, very moving experience to see her on the ultrasound. Right? Would you say to her, no, mom, that's not me. You're mistaken. Right? That's just a biological organism. 
I didn't begin to exist until I was about four years old when I became self-conscious, when my mind began to inhabit this biological organism that I currently occupy. It seems like no one would say that about themselves. It's easy to say that about someone else, though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, none of us want to be dehumanized, right? We, we constantly, you know, because of the wounds of original sin, we dehumanize others, but we certainly don't like to be dehumanized, right? And, um, you know, the, you know this, this, is, uh, this goes back to book two of the Republic as well. Glaucon, you know, says we all, we love to, to dish it out. We love to diff, dish out injustice, but we hate to be the victim, right? The moment that somebody begins to treat us in a way that's unjust, we say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's unfair. That's unjust. And the, the character of Smirnikov and the brothers Karamazov is a good example of this as well. He goes around, you know, famously saying, you know, everything is permitted. God is dead. Everything is permitted. Right? You can do whatever you want. The moment that somebody starts to, to treat him poorly, he says, you can't do that. That's evil. It's wrong. It's unjust. It's immoral. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, the, the experience of injustice can be a very sobering one for the aspiring uh, nihilist or immoralist, right? I mean, it can really, uh, you know, hopefully make them reevaluate uh, that, that position. So, uh, so I want to keep going here. And, um, I think abortion by its very nature, uh, it generates a set of problems that do not arise in the case of biomedical research that we were discussing earlier, um, where, um, you know, the key issue there is really the ontological status of early human beings. I think um, abortion obviously presupposes a pregnancy, right? I think everybody grants that now, acknowledges that now, and pregnancy involves two individuals, I think everyone acknowledges that now, uh, the mother and the child. And, you know, I think a very common objection you hear here is that the unborn child is just a part of the mother, of the maternal organism, like an arm or a leg. Uh, I don't think that is, is very persuasive at all, because the child very clearly possesses his or her own unique genetic profile. They possess their own blood type. They possess their own bone structure. In 50% of the cases, they, they belong to a distinct biological sex, right? They possess their own organs, right? So um, if you just look at the genetic differences alone, right, it's clear that they are two distinct organisms, right? These are two distinct individuals. Um, and you can, you can point to one biological difference after another, right? I think if you look at, you know, look at every single move of an obstetrician, Right, during prenatal care is going to be grounded on the assumption of the distinctness of the child developing in his or her mother's womb. Right? I don't think anyone is surprised by the realization that after the delivery, the child has a perfectly independent biological and genetic trajectory that's distinct from the mother. And this is a trajectory that started at conception. We certainly don't deny that, you know, after birth, but it's present before birth as well. I mean, birth doesn't really affect that at all. You know, passing through the birth canal is not some kind of, you know, magical moment. I mean, it is in a way, but in, in terms of ontology and metaphysics, in terms of determining the kind of thing that you are, it's really not that significant. Right? You don't be, become a distinct kind of thing, right, when you pass through the birth canal, right? So some defenders of abortion, you know, will, I would say increasingly the vast majority now will concede that 
abortion involves the killing of a human being. And the argument now is that it's a justified killing. That's, that's really where the debate is now, I would say. And that we've come a long way, right? From people denying that there's an act of homicide, denying that there's an act of killing, denying that there is a human being here, denying that there's a person here. Uh, I think we're really at the point now where people, you know, the really most ardent uh, or even the most sophisticated abortion advocates will argue that this is a killing. This is a killing of a person, uh, but it is a justified killing. Okay. So Peter Singer, you know, is, is probably one of the best examples we have of this. And, um, you know, he will try to defend this sort of extreme dualism we've been talking about. He will say there's, there's a distinction between human beings and persons and uh, the child because it is just a human being or a mere human being. Uh, and is not a person and has no right to life because it lacks mental abilities like self-awareness or a sense of psychological continuity over time. Um, I think others try to justify abortion by claiming that any rights the child has will be outweighed by the rights of the mother. That's probably the more common view. Um, you know, you still run into people that will try to make that human being versus person distinction, but I think that view is really declining. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, there, you just hear this language of rights constantly, you know, the right to, to, to terminate a pregnancy. But even then, uh, as I said, the most sophisticated abortion advocates really, that's one thing that's really struck me that I haven't found any of them that really defend a right to terminate the pregnancy. They just will defend this right to um, extract the child or there's not a duty to carry the child. Right. I, I found that to be very interesting, very eye-opening. There, there seems like there's a real disjunction between the average person on the street who defends abortion and, and the philosophical defenses. That's something that I've really been struck by uh, as I've done a deep dive uh, into this research, into this literature. I think you know one thing that's going to come up here, and it's, it's a, we're seeing it already right now, will be the introduction of artificial wombs. And some people seem to think that this will radically transform this conversation. Uh, so it would respond to someone like Judith Jarvis Thompson, who would, you know, would say there's not a right, there's not a duty to carry the child. Well, you would say that at that point, okay, well, we can transfer the child to this artificial womb at 11 weeks. And it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, quick outpatient procedure. And you go your way, and then we'll, we'll gestate the child in the artificial womb and, and you know, eventually, uh, or maybe the child's implanted in someone else through some type of embryo adoption or eventually the child is just given up for you know, normal adoption. Um, I find uh, this to be a very interesting line of argument. Uh, the church has not spoken officially about artificial wombs. We'll see what happens. Um, you know, I would say I'm cautiously optimistic about the morality of artificial wombs. I think initially they will be introduced to save children that are very, very premature, kids that are, would otherwise die at 10, 11, 12 weeks, things like that. But again, as I said, there, there will be dangers here that this becomes uh, the norm and there's increasing pressure uh, to just for every child to be gestated in this way. So some people try to argue that even then you could still have a right to, even if artificial wombs were available, that you might have a preference that a, a, a biological relative, a genetic relative is not walking the face of the earth, right? I don't really find that to be a very compelling argument. So yeah, you might have that preference, but why should we honor that preference? Right. There may be all sorts of people that you don't really want walking around the face of the earth, right? Or relatives, you may have a, a sibling you don't really get along with, right? But you don't have a right to kill them. Um, you know, you may just have to get on with it, right? And just sort of, you know, 
accept the fact that they have an independent life and, and a good independent of your own? Dr. Furlan, I, yes. I, I kind of see this as another, um, another uh, technology that would perhaps be used by the wealthy because okay. of fertilization mm -hmm. issues are not able to carry to full term. I can't see the majority of people who, uh, at least in my experience, want an abortion wanting to bother with that. Because it's almost like, uh, <laughs> to be honest, it's kind of like creating a, a new tech orphanage. Okay, and if they really were interested in that, then we would still have Catholic orphanages, you know. I think, I think a lot of it is actually, I, I hate to say this, but it, a lot of it is uh, the way people, you, it's their form of birth control. You, you see 20-year-olds who've had 10, 11 abortions. Yeah. You know, so they're, sorry. Aren't the, aren't the wealthy already doing a form of this with surrogates in, in uh, less developed countries? They're, yeah, yeah. No, very good point, Susan and William. Great, very, I think, very perceptive, very good questions and, and points. So thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot where, you know, IVF is, is certainly very expensive. It is, and, and these other reproductive technologies will be very expensive and they will be likely only accessible to the very wealthy, right? And that, that raises all sorts of troubling questions. Uh, William's point about uh, what's going on now with surrogacy is, I think, there's some very, very troubling things going on with surrogacy. So during the pandemic, uh, apparently there were all these people meeting up in, in Cyprus in the Turkish part of Cyprus. So the island of Cyprus is divided. There's a Turkish part and a Greek part. There was an invasion by the Turks in the early 1970s that was condemned by every country in the world except Turkey. And um, they allow for some really questionable forms of surrogacy to take place there. And you have all these people going there and meeting women from the developing world and what happened was during the pandemic was that these women who were pregnant with these children were abandoned and they, these, these, uh, you know, prospective parents just sort of left them and took off and you had thousands of these children and these surrogate women who were in many cases paid very, very little money. Uh, you know, much like the, the people selling their kidneys in India for, you know, $1,200, things like that. I mean, they're, they're really not paid very much money at all relatively speaking, right? I mean, $1,200 in India is enough to support a family for a year at least, right? So some of these people, you know, are, are desperate and, and, you know, are willing to do this. You know, all things considered, I think they would like to, to keep their, their kidney. Uh, in the 19th century, people, poor people used to sell their teeth, right? That's a really, you know, kind of very troubling image where uh, the poor would sell their teeth to wealthier people, right? Bentham writes about this, you know, in the 1840s, right? And there's obviously something very dehumanizing and, and, and instrumentalizing about that. And I think I think we we many of us have a kind of very similar intuition about about surrogacy and um, various forms of medical tourism that we're seeing now as well. But the so the children that were abandoned were true biological children of these other people. They weren't even genetically related to the surrogate. Am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's right. So in some cases, yeah, in many cases, artificial insemination, it may be those individuals, maybe somebody else, they may be taking anonymous sperm donors, they may choose someone else to be a sperm donor. Right. So there's all sorts of different possibilities here. And what they're doing is that they're hiring these these poor women from the developing world to uh, essentially carry the child. 
and it's becoming increasingly common. And and that's that's a larger concern about commodification and about um, you know children being um, increasingly seen as consumer goods. Well, my thought on the the artificial womb question was it it's yet another chance for the government to kind of take over parenting and it's really, you know, the, so. Yeah, that's a good point, William. Yeah. So, you know, right now, um, you know, the government may get involved if there's some kind of extreme drug use, for instance, right. If a mother's, you know, using heroin or something, right. Where, uh, you know, there are these tragic cases where, you know, a mother gives birth and she's got her, you know, they take the child away right away. Right. I mean, the, the social workers and the police are right there and they take the child right out of the maternity ward because the mother is addicted to, you know, various drugs. And uh, this this happens. I mean, I've I've been involved in some of those cases on, on clinical ethics committees where, uh, you know, there's serious mental illness, things like that, and uh, the mother's not capable of of being a mother. Uh, and obviously, the goal there is to try to restore restore her to a level of competency, right, through either mental health treatment or uh, you know helping address her substance abuse that would allow the child to be um, raised by by his or her biological parents there, right? But, uh, you know, tragically, in some cases, intervention is necessary. But I think, William, your point is a good one where the government may be very heavily involved here in terms of, um, you know, right now we, we give wide latitude to parents in terms of uh, maternal health and, and choices that are made. And this comes up in, in all these debates about, you know, a quality of outcome, right? You know, a quality of opportunity versus a quality of outcome. It seems to me that if you're really going to have a quality of outcome, that would have to be almost got a tyrannical state where the government is is making sure that every parent is is you know making the same good you know maternal decisions, and, and the mothers are having these perfectly calibrated you know diets, and you know you'd have to really micromanage really every single aspect of people's lives. Or later on, after the children are born, you know, making sure that every parent reads to their children the same amount of time. Right. And obviously some parents are going to want to do more. Right. And, you know, they're going to some people are better parents than others. Right. And some people are are better teachers than others. And, and some parents are more devoted than others. And that's just a fact. So it seems to me that that focus on equality of outcome is, is really going to lead in the direction of tyranny pretty quickly. And it's going to have to involve a level of micromanagement that, that I think many of us would find to be um, suffocating. Let's let's keep thinking here. So let's think about this alleged conflict of rights. I think this is really important here, right? And just even think of what are rights. I mean, so often we use this language of rights discourse. Some people think we should even abandon the notion of rights. So Marianne Glendon, who's a well-known scholar here at Harvard Law School, wrote a book called Rights Talk, where she argued that you know rights talk is, is done more harm than good. We should try to, you know, transition into some other type of discourse. Uh, you know, McIntyre will deny that rights even exist. He thinks you know rights like uh Witches and unicorns, and and were invented in the 17th century. Uh, you know, McIntyre just wants to talk about justice and, and duties and virtues, and, and he doesn't even think that you know it's really an ontological, metaphysical claim. He thinks that rights just don't even exist. But um, you know, my own view is is that rights discourse is valuable, but it can be very quickly uh, distorted, and it can. Um, it can become very destructive. And I think the most common mistake a lot of people make today is they associate rights with wants, with the desires. And they say, I have a right to whatever I want, whatever I desire. And that's going to necessarily lead to a lot of conflict very quickly. 
I think rights are going to have to be grounded in human nature and grounded in authentic human needs and what we need in order to really flourish and thrive as the kind of thing that we are. But I think right now we're just seeing that association of rights with desires and wants. And that's why we're seeing this explosion in rights claims and new rights being discovered. And we're discovering new rights left and right. You know, some people are now saying there's a right to, um, you know, procreative autonomy. And that includes, you know, right, you know, access to PGD. It includes access to IVF. It includes access to every possible form of biotechnology. Uh, it includes, uh, you know, the access to using another person's body, you know, as a surrogate. Um, and it becomes very expansive very quickly. So I want to just talk about what rights are. I mean, I think that that's really what the, the key question here is that I would say that, you know, as a basic working definition, we might say that a moral right is to have either a justified claim and the key word they're being justified, a justified claim against being interfered with in one's enjoyment of something or one's possession of something or a positive claim to something. Okay. So there's negative rights and there's positive rights. So a negative right would be right a justified claim against being interfered with in your possession or enjoyment of something which is genuinely good, and a positive a positive right then would be a claim to like forty acres and a mule right. That's an interesting question about whether or not there are positive rights. Is there a positive right to universal basic income? This is a really interesting debate. I think it's going to become increasingly prevalent in the next generation or so with automation and AI, where more and more jobs are lost. I think there may be a real push towards universal basic income? Is there a right, you know, to have a certain basic minimum threshold of income that you do not fall below? I had a friend of mine who's a philosopher. Uh, so Finland is the first co- country to institute UBI. And my friend, this guy, he, he went to Finland. He was working on this project. He was hired by the Finnish government. They hired all these philosophers and political scientists and sociologists and economists to really implement the first UBI system. And it's a really interesting debate. What do we think about this? Is there a right to universal basic income? Let's say $40,000 a year, $45,000 a year that you will never fall below. And you can do whatever you want. You can play video games all day. You can, you can check out. You can you know, stare out the window all day. You can watch the grass grow. Rawls actually, John Rawls actually uses that example of the, the grass, the guy watching grass grow. The gra- counts the grass. He, he devotes his life to counting blades of grass. Probably not aren't the we, kind of life, but aren't we kind of experimenting with that this year, with with all the available jobs that are going unfilled and okay, people are staying yeah. home? Okay, very good, William. Yeah, so some people have actually argued that uh, this is sort of prepping us for something like UBI. It's sort of greasing the skids for something like UBI. Yeah, but obviously, some people are going to have to work, right? If none of us are working, right? And where you know, where's the money going to come from, right? Where's economic growth going to come from? And then the question is, well, you know, how are the people that are working going to feel about that, right? Um, if you look at all these utopian, you know, here in Boston, there was a utopian community called Brook Farm. Uh, there was all these utopian communities that sprang up in the 19th century. And it's interesting to think about why that was in Oneonta, New York, and, and here in Brook Farm. And Hawthorne lived there for a little while. Thoreau was invited to go live there. He said he'd rather go to hell. Um, <laughs> but, but anyways, um, you know, what happened was you see the same dynamic play out every single time where, you know, some people were working like, you know, grueling 15 hour, 16 hour days doing farm work. And then other people weren't working at all. 
and they very quickly developed a lot of resentment and frustration and anger uh, towards the people that weren't really pulling their weight. And uh, these communities did not last for very long. The town that I live in, in Dedham, Massachusetts, all the property was held in common for the first 60 years. I'm amazed by this. From 1636 until the 1690s, all the property here was held in common until this dynamic started to play out. And some people wanted to have their own private property and they wanted to put up fences and they wanted to say, this, this is mine because I worked really hard and I, I invested this with my labor. This is John Locke. And this guy, you know, laid around all day and did nothing. And why should I have to work and support this guy? Any any thoughts about about UBI? Is there a right to universal basic income? Is there a right to periodic vacation? That's in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So in France, they give five weeks paid vacation. If I don't get five weeks paid vacation, is that a human rights violation? Well, it seems like you might want to make the argument that you have a right to a basic income insofar as it secures you food and shelter and things like that, clothing, right? That would be the best argument, right? Yeah, I think that's right, uh, James. I think, yeah, you're going to want to go in that direction of fulfilling basic human capacities that we all possess and basic human needs that we all have, right? So addressing those those necessary conditions for what Aristotle calls eudaimonia, right? So Aristotle says to be eudaimon, you don't need to be a billionaire. You don't need to be the wealthiest person alive, but you need some money. If you're, if you're absolutely destitute, it's going to be really difficult to be eudaimon. If you're living under a bridge and you're wondering where your next meal is going to come from, it's going to be really difficult to be eudaimon. He says, you don't have to be the healthiest person alive to be eudaimon. You don't have to be some Olympic athlete or, you know, have perfect BMI and perfect cholesterol and perfect blood pressure, but you need some basic amount of good health, right? If you're in a, a PBS state, uh, you know, if you're, you're crippled by really serious illness, uh, he's going to say, yeah, it's going to be really difficult for you. It's not impossible. But it's going to be difficult to be Udemon, right? He says that um, if all your friends and family die, it's going to be really difficult for you to be Udemon. If you're living in a really uh, unstable political and social environment, it's going to be really difficult to be Udemon. He says, if your children become evil, it's going to be very difficult for you to become Udemon, right? Um, I, I find it fascinating. He uses the example of Priam from the Iliad. Right. Priam suffers in a way that very few of us will ever suffer. I mean, Priam, he loses his sons, Hector uh, and Paris. Right, He loses his kingdom, his wife and, and daughters are sold into slavery. He says, even Priam, even if you suffer to the extent that Priam suffers, you can still recover your eudaimonia. He says, it won't be easy and it may take a lifetime. But even Priam can become eudaimon again. Dr. Furlan, I, I live in Southern California and when I work in hospice, yeah. working with families, patients, and so forth. I can tell you every single example you gave, I've seen. People are literally thrown away, including by their children. Yeah. And yeah. the turning, it, people turning evil is a lot more common than people think in the sense that they become narcissistic. Yeah. They don't want to feel that they have any responsibility for aging parents and so forth. So they keep yeah. passing the buck. <laughs> and the well, state can't handle it. <laughs> well, I think this is really concerning with the euthanasia debate, Susan. So I'm very concerned about elder abuse. I'm very concerned about it. It'd be so easy to kill an elderly parent with euthanasia drugs in the home. Uh, you can make it look like suicide, right? It'd be so easy to kill them. It's so, you know, coercion can take very subtle forms as well. Right now, there's insurance companies that will pay for euthanasia, but they won't pay for health care. They won't pay for medical treatments. Right. So that, that's a very troubling form of coercion there. 
And, you know, many of these people might be terrified of, of bankrupting the family. They might feel pressure, you know, there may be very subtle forms of pressure there. They don't want to be a burden to their family and, and family members, as you were saying, Susan may, may, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, very vicious dispositions and, and may put very subtle pressure on them or more overt pressure. In some extreme cases, we may see involuntary active euthanasia as well. So I'm very concerned about that uh, particular issue of elder abuse and, and coercion because uh, I think we're seeing it already. Um, you know, even in cases that are not extreme, Dr. Ferland, um, it, it's overwhelming to care for an aged parent, let alone if they have dementia, Alzheimer's. Nobody can afford this except very wealthy people. And, yeah. you know, Medicare will pay for hospice, but they won't pay for the caregiving that's needed for that patient. So they benefit by keeping that person out of the hospital to die but they don't provide any means for the family to take care of them to die. It, it, it's just horrific, really. And, and so even when it's well-intentioned, yeah, yeah. people can really die in bad situations. Yeah, that's a great point, Susan. Yeah, so I think there's a kind of catch-22 here where you know, either you need to be very wealthy or very poor, right? So to qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you have to be you know, substantially below the federal poverty line. And, you know, most of us are somewhere in between. We're not, you know, destitute, but we're not extremely wealthy either. I mean, most people are going to be in that middle class. And, and those are the people most affected there. And they're in that sort of catch-22 situation where hospice care is really expensive. Mental health treatment is really expensive. You mean patient mental health treatment. Um, and, and most people don't qualify, right, for any kind of – so that raises questions then about universal health care and what should that cover. That, that's a larger question. Is there a right to health care? That's a huge debate in bioethics today. Um, and what do we really owe to others? Um, and uh, we could teach an entire class just on, on that topic. Maybe we'll keep going here. I want to keep talking about rights because I think this is very, very important. So uh, a key point I want to make here is that just wanting or desiring something does not create a right. Okay, Very, very, very important. I may want to uh, own the, the Porsche that I see driving down the street. Right. But that obviously does not uh, make me the owner of that. I'm not, you know, justified in, in stealing that Porsche from from that person. Right. Um, that purchase that person's purchase of the car. Right. Gave them a title to it. The other key point I want to make here, obviously, is that um, the inverse of this as well, that not wanting or not desiring something does not nullify a right. So simply because you don't want to live any longer, let's say you're going through a period of clinical depression that doesn't mean that you don't have a right to life any longer. Okay. This is very important. Uh, you may not desire to own some property that is, uh, you know, bequeathed to you, but nonetheless, you still are the rightful owner until you dispose of it. You can transfer it legally to somebody else. Secondly, I would say a moral right, either positive or negative does not require consciousness of that right or awareness of that right or its object. This is really important, okay? Simply because you are in a PBS state or because you are a child, an unborn child, and not conscious or not aware of your rights does not mean that you do not have rights, okay? We do this all the time with, you know, uh, patients with really severe cognitive disabilities, right? You know, that have the mental capacities of a, a two-year-old, right? We wouldn't say they don't have rights simply because they're not aware of their rights 
where animals are a good example of this as well. Animals are not aware of their rights. And yet, I think most of us say animals have some rights. They may not have the same rights that we have. I don't think anybody's going to see an animal has a right to vote. You know, we're not going to drag a, a gorilla into a voting booth, right? But we're going to say that they do have, you know, the right not to be, to, to suffer unnecessary uh, suffering, something like that, right? Uh, or to be subjected to, you know, cruelty or, or whatever it is. Okay. So I, that's, that's a really key point here. Okay. So permanently unconscious. Go ahead. Go ahead, Susan. I'm so sorry to to ask again, but to, would you say that that right to life, even if not wanted, requires a, a, the the community has value of that life, and the community has agreed that animals have certain basic rights, humans have certain basic rights. If the community doesn't agree, then goodbye. <laughs> you don't have anybody in your corner if you give up. That's true. That doesn't mean you don't have intrinsic rights or you don't have intrinsic dignity. So tragically, we can think of many examples where, you know, communities descend into barbarism, right? Yeah. yeah right? So they, they strip people, whether that's the Holocaust or that's slavery, right? Where that, we can think of, you know, tragically, we can think of many, many examples here of, of barbarism, right? Romans, you know, having Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum, right? It doesn't mean they didn't have rights simply because that society failed to recognize them, okay? It doesn't mean they did not have dignity, right, simply because that society failed to recognize it. That's an indictment of that society, right? That, that's a, a condemnation of that society. But, yeah, I think that's a really dangerous route to go down where your rights are conferred upon you by society. And what does Thomas Jefferson say in the Declaration of Independence? Where do our rights come from? They come from our creator and they are inalienable, right? So they can't be lost. They can't be abrogated. They can't be contracted away. There's a famous case in Germany, if you guys maybe heard about this, where there was a guy, obviously he was suffering from severe mental illness, where he put up an ad on, on a Craigslist or something. He was asking to be cannibalized. He wanted to be cannibalized. He wanted to be murdered and he wanted to be cannibalized. What I find really troubling is like 500 people responded. It wasn't like one guy responded. It was like 500 people responded. And he had like interviews and he had like semifinalists and like finalists. And he finally chose this guy to, to kill him and to cannibalize him. And they worked out a contract and they had they video recorded everything. And um, later on, the, the police found out about this and they arrested this guy for murder. And this guy tried to make this argument was that this guy forfeited his right to life he signed this contract. He contracted away his right to life. He wanted me to, to kill him and to cannibalize him. And, and the police and the judge and the jury, they did not go for that. And he was convicted of murder uh, because they argued that the right to life is, is inalienable. You cannot forfeit that. You cannot contract it away. Interestingly, this guy now is a vegan. He's morally opposed to factory farming. So he's become a vegan. <laughs> he's a problem with cannibalism, but... Um, maybe we'll keep going here. So the last point I made here was that even if you are permanently unconscious or you're not sentient as an unborn child, it doesn't mean that you don't have rights. Okay. Uh, and that's very, very important. Okay. Rights do not depend upon being conscious or aware of those rights. And that's true of animals as well, or people in PBS states or whatever it is. Okay. The third point I want to make that's very important is that a right has to be a claim to protection in or possession of something that is acknowledged to be truly good, okay? It's absurd to claim that you have a right 
to be mugged, right? Or you have a claim, a right to be sexually assaulted or a right to be dehumanized or a right to be, you know, whatever it is. Rights must be claims to protection in or possession of something that is truly good. Okay, does that make sense? Like the fellow who had the right to be eaten. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's how you'd respond to that. That being murdered and cannibalized is not, you know, there's no right to be murdered and cannibalized. Okay. So again, there are really important limits to autonomy and freedom. And I think that's one of the most important uh, challenges for our time is, is to uh, acknowledge proper limits and boundaries to human freedom and autonomy and to really push back against that purely negative conception of freedom is just the absence of any limits or boundaries to one's will. And this is a very ancient dream. This goes back to the Platonic Dialogues. You see this in Callicles, you see this in Thrasymachus, you see this in Glaucon where they celebrate the tyrant as the happiest of all because he, he has no limits, he has no boundaries. He can do whatever he wants. You know, Callicles talks about allowing your desires to grow infinitely and not to allow anything to check them. So this is the, the best possible life and to have the power where you can inflict injustice upon other people but you're so powerful that they cannot strike back. You can you can inflict injustice without suffering injustice. So this is the best possible human life. And obviously Plato and the Republic is gonna to try to meet this, this challenge head on. I'm probably gonna teach a class on Plato's Republic uh, for this, this for the Institute if anybody's interested. So that'll probably be uh, my next course or, or one shortly thereafter if anybody's interested. So that's kind of a sneak peek. I talk about the Republic a lot because I think it's, it's such an incredible uh, seminal text. So. Keep an eye out for that. So with all this in mind, I think we can come back to this question about the conflict of rights between mother and child in abortion. And when would the rights of the mother override those of the child, right? So what are the arguments that are given here? I think a dualist would argue that they always override because the rights of an actual person outweigh or defeat those of a potential person. So this, this argument is developed by Marianne Warren uh, I have a paper coming out in the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics where I, I really go right at her on this point. Um, I think this is not really persuasive at all because I would say having the potentiality for the exercise of these higher human faculties, these, these higher rational capacities, right, which is exactly what the term potential person already alludes to, does not exclude the actuality of being a human person. Right? The potentiality for the exercise of those higher faculties is nothing other than an actual capacity that's inherent now in the unborn child. That capacity is already present in the unborn child, even though it's not being manifested. Right, The ability to exercise that capacity must obviously await the child's maturing, but it's, it's really important here not to confuse an ability um, an ability must not be confused with the capacity, okay? So obviously a human being can have a capacity for higher mental uh, activities without yet being able to exercise those, just as you and I right now have the capacity to say, learn Mandarin Chinese. I mean, all of us could learn Mandarin Chinese. Maybe somebody already, somebody knows Mandarin, I don't know. But all of us have the capacity to learn Mandarin Right, but right now we do not yet have the ability to speak Mandarin. Okay, I could spend the next twenty years trying to learn Mandarin, probably not going to happen. And yet I do have the capacity to learn Mandarin. 
in the way that the tree outside my window does not and never will have. Okay. So I would say since the mother and child are on the same footing with regard to being human, the key consideration will be the specific rights that are pitted against each other. And these will depend upon the goods that are at stake since rights, I would say, are going to be specified by the goods they seek to secure. Okay, that's the way that I would frame it. We have to, to drill down further. We have to specify, okay, which rights here are being pitted against each other? And then what are the goods that are at stake here? Because the rights specified, uh, rights are going to be specified by the goods they seek to secure and protect, okay? So let's start with the unborn child. Right, given that an abortion is an action whose goal is the death of the child. I think it's obvious there the intention there, the goal there is, is to kill the child, right? So you see this even with so-called uh, afterbirth abortions. These happen, right? I mean, these happen where the child is born and, and you know, they will then go kill the child, right? Uh, I think it makes it very clear that the death uh, is the goal. It's the intention there. It's the direct intention, right? So it's clear that the good at stake is the good of life. And since the developing child is enjoying the good of life, the developing child is alive. I think everybody grants that. I think it's fair to say that he or she has a justified claim not to be deprived of life, right? Under the principle of non-maleficence. It's a very, very clear case of violating the principle of non-maleficence, of inflicting the most serious, the most grievous possible harm. If you're taking someone's life, that, that's the most grievous possible harm because you deprive them of all their possible goods, right? I would say this negative right does not depend upon consciousness, okay? The good of life sustains consciousness, but can also be possessed without it, okay? People who are sleeping obviously do not lose their right to life. People that are in PBS states do not lose their right to life. Uh, even if the the state is irreversible, I would say, it is still wrong to intentionally kill the innocent. Okay. So somebody might try to claim that abortion does not involve an intention to kill the unborn child, right? That it merely amounts to intentionally detaching the child from the mother. And that if it were possible to nurture the child in an artificial womb, as we said, right, that should be done. Okay. I think this is an objection that should be taken seriously because uh, I think it, it it goes deeper here. I think it shows that there is a deeper attitude of disengagement that underlies this alleged conflict of rights, right? I think the problem here though, is that the description of standard abortion procedures today as merely detaching a fetus is, is totally implausible and inaccurate. I think it's disingenuous to claim that an action, right, that uses means, whether chemical or surgical, to ensure the death of a child is not performed with the intention of securing its death. If you stab a child in the head with a knife, it's absurd to say that your, your intention there is, is not to harm them. If you inject sodium chloride into the right ventricle of their heart, it's absurd to say that your intention there is not to harm them or to kill them, right? It could be maybe a case of like extreme gross negligence there, like extreme incompetence where you don't understand that that chemical is, is poisonous or deadly. But I think that's very, very rarely the case, okay? I think this is precisely what the abortionist seeks to achieve, which is a dead baby, right? That's their intention. 
This is their aim. Even when the baby is viable, even when the baby is healthy, right, and perfectly capable of surviving, even uh, if only allowed to emerge alive, right? I would say in contrast to abortion, a cesarean section, which is very common, performed after viability, after week 38, right, or after week 18 in some cases, right, to allow a child to continue to live outside the mother's body, I would say does satisfy the description of detachment. That is an accurate description of trying to detach the child. A C-section or placing the child in an artificial womb, I think would also be an accurate description of detachment, but not stabbing somebody in the head with a knife or dismembering them. So I think in order to assess the merits of this conflict, right, I think we have to also look at the rights of the mother. So we looked at the rights of, of the child. What are the goods that ground her rights and which of these uh, would be deprived if the pregnancy continued, okay? I think the good that's most commonly mentioned in this debate is going to be a woman's control over her own body. Some people might try to frame this in terms of property. Um, I've always been, I've been fascinated by as well that again, the philosophical defenders here really shy away from that, that property analogy. Like Marion Warren really pushes back against that very strongly. Um, I think it's also important to recognize here, though, that abortion, right, also involves interference with the body of another, right? So it's sort of hypocritical to say that, you know, you're very strongly opposed to someone else interfering with your bodily rights, and that's exactly what you're doing to another, right? So, this, you know, I'm, I'm reading Shelby Foote's History of the Civil War again. It's really an incredible book, if anybody's interested in the Civil War. And you, know, you read these speeches by Jefferson Davis and others, Alexander Stevens, and they keep talking about you know, their, their rights are being infringed upon, their, their liberty is being infringed upon. Well, it's exactly what they're doing to, to all these slaves, right? I mean, it, it's, it's just wildly hypocritical, right? And it, it just, it doesn't, uh, it's just not persuasive at all, right? Uh, if you, you care so much about liberty, you know, then why in the world are you enslaving three and a half million people? Right. If you care so much about bodily rights and interfering with, you know, other people interfering with your bodily integrity and rights, then why are you doing this to another? Right. Um, I think that, you know, another route that is often taken here is that people will try to enumerate the evils that, or the, the difficulties that would follow upon continuation of the pregnancy. Right. So, you know, uh, the burden of motherhood at a young age. Uh, risk to health, stigma of being an unwed mother. I think that's pretty much gone now in, in contemporary society where we're seeing surging rates of, of children being born out of wedlock. That may become the norm here pretty soon. Um, the prospect of raising a child alone because of the, the possibility of being a single, single mother, uh, the additional financial, physical, or emotional stress of, of really having other children or other, other obstacles in life, um, the loss of career opportunities may be mentioned in some cases, uh, limitations and conveniences imposed by pregnancy itself. Um, so I think you could say that because it is rational to avoid evils and harms, right? You might say that because it is rational there, that there might be a right to avoid them. Um, but obviously there, um, let's just bracket that for a minute. I think that some people might say that there's even a more radical right just to choose to autonomy itself. And I think the most extreme defenders of abortion will go down this route, although to say there's a right to choose itself. There's a right to autonomy itself. 
and the goods and the evils of pregnancy itself don't really matter. What simply matters are the desires of the mother and what she chooses to do regardless of what she in fact chooses, as long as that choice is autonomous and as long as that choice is not coerced, right? So um, I think this appeal to radical autonomy, um, so it's really, it's a right to satisfy any desire regardless of its object. What do we think about this, this right to radical autonomy? It's a right to choose itself. Do we find that persuasive? Are there limits to freedom and limits to autonomy? I wonder what they ground, it, uh, um, what do they grounded in? What would they say? That... I think they would just say autonomy is a kind of hyper principle that outweighs everything, right? That there's a conflict in autonomy and justice or autonomy and beneficence or autonomy and non-maleficence. Autonomy wins out every time, but- And I wonder how they would make that or why they would say, right? Yeah, I mean, they're going to say the ultimate human good is sort of self-creation, self-fashioning. Um, and this is sort of an endless process. And you see this in Nietzsche, you see this in Foucault as well. Um, you know, in the end, you know, there's just this sort of endless process of self-creation. For Nietzsche, it is kind of an aesthetic ideal, you know, that every single detail is very carefully chosen and, and sort of very carefully crafted. and Everything kind of fits together in a harmonious way. Um, I, I would say I don't really find this plausible at all. Okay. I think it's pretty clear that we sometimes desire things that are good. And sometimes we desire things that are, are really bad for us that are destructive um, and, and really harmful to us. Okay. So we have right and wrong desires. There's some desires we have that should not be fulfilled. If you have a desire to harm, to, to cause really serious, unjustified harm to another person, that's not a desire that should be fulfilled. Or if you want to defraud or injure or kill another person, Obviously, that desire should not, if you had a desire to, to enslave someone else, right, or sexually assault someone, obviously that desire should not be fulfilled, right? That desire should be frustrated. So this is another important critique of preference utilitarianism or any form of desire satisfaction theory, any attempt to describe the human good in terms of desire satisfaction, right, which is a very common view. I'm, I'm surprised by how prevalent it is. But um yeah, that we, we are often mistaken about what is, is truly good for us. And we have desires that should not be fulfilled. If your desire is to be an SS officer or a sex trafficker or a slave trader, then, then obviously those preferences should not be fulfilled, right? Those should not be given any credence at all. They should not be part of the utility calculus. And this is a larger problem with utilitarianism where they, they claim not to judge preferences, right? Peter Singer will make a big deal out of this. He'll say, all that matters to me are that people's preferences are counted up and added. And that the greatest number of preferences are fulfilled. I don't want to be in the business of, of judging preferences. I claim to be totally neutral. But then you, you really push him on this. You know, Michael Sandel has a good debate with uh, Singer. I, I'll, I'll post it on the, the course page. It's actually on the ethics of biotechnology. And Sandel brings up the example of Jim Crow in the American South. And, you know, uh, Singer says, oh, these terrible racists, they need to be educated and they need to change their preferences. And Sandel says, well, wait a minute, I thought you don't judge preferences. I, I thought you don't really, you know, you're above the fray, and, you know, you uh, you just want to add and, you know, aggregate and maximize preferences. And Singer just sort of smiles and just sort of, he's got this, you know, he, I think he kind of recognizes he's sort of on the ropes at that point. But um, I think it, it's, it's impossible not to judge preferences. I think we all, we're constantly judging preferences and desires all the time. And, and that's, that's correct. It sounds like what, 
you spoke about earlier about your your own preferences versus someone else's preferences. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you know you uh, may have a preference to really harm someone else, but uh, you know the moment they really begin to inflict harm upon you, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably going to react to that. So I would say something really important here is that autonomy by itself does not guarantee morally right action. Something is is not good simply because something is, you know, Rawls will actually defend this claim that something is good simply because it is chosen, right? That's the very act of something being chosen that that confers goodness upon it. I, I don't find that that appealing at all. I would say freedom is more of an instrumental good, right? And that freedom is only as good as the ends to which it is directed. And that true freedom comes from self-control. My brother was interviewed in the newspaper one time, uh, and he actually said that at one point. He said, true freedom comes from self-control. I was so proud of him. I said, you nailed it. You got it right, right on the mark. So I think you know, freely choosing to have an abortion does not tell us whether the choice was right or wrong, okay? Any more than freely choosing to kill one's child after birth right, would tell us whether that choice was right or wrong. To judge the morality of abortion, I would argue we have to consider the human goods, right? Uh, or even more narrowly, we would have to consider whether the principle of non-maleficence is being violated, right? If an autonomous action causes significant harm to someone, I would argue that it should not be performed. And there may be some, some exceptions to that, such as justified killing in a military conflict or in self-defense, um, but those are going to be very sharply restricted cases, okay? So I would say it's clear that abortion negatively affects the life of the child. He or she is obviously deprived of the human good that sustains the enjoyment of all other possible goods. The goods of which the mother is deprived, if the pregnancy continues, do not seem to be of the same magnitude or seem comparable to the loss of life. There may be some inconvenience, there may be additional burdens or difficulties, but there's also gonna be a tremendous amount of good as well that comes out of, of the life of the child as well. I think anybody who's ever been a parent will see that it can be certainly very demanding, but, but also incredibly rewarding as well. So um, yeah, so obviously those burdens of pregnancy can be severe, they can have lasting effects, but they can also be very minor and transient as well. Right, many women maintain a fairly normal routine life. They they work up until, you know, right before the the birth in many cases, um, and also we 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 standardly and should expect fathers as well to bear significant burdens in relation to the children they have fathered. This is very very important. It's very interesting that fatherhood seems to be a very distinctly human phenomenon. I, I'm really intrigued by this. If you look at the animal kingdom, fathers just don't seem to exist. They're just sort of uh, sperm donors, and they sort of vanish at that point. Fatherhood seems to be a very distinctively human phenomenon. I think there are theological implications for that. Also to the fact that women have such a long post-reproductive uh, life is, is very distinctively human as well. We're the only species that have this, this where women live for 40 or 50 years after uh, you know, they're able to conceive a child. That's, that's distinctively human as well. And I think there are good reasons for that. Obviously, uh, you know, grandmothers play a very important role and they're, they're an important source of, of wisdom. Uh, we're learning, I'm learning so much from my mom, but um, those do seem to be distinctly human phenomenons. 
So, yeah, I think if we really compare the goods and the burdens here that are at stake, I think it, it's pretty clear that the uh, the killing of the child, right, is going to be the most serious, the most grievous possible harm. This is probably how I, I would frame the issue. Um, there's one other argument that I want to bring up here that's a very common argument. It's by a guy named Don Marquis that, that's really very common. Uh, it's used in a lot of anthologies, a lot of ethics courses, bioethics courses, and it's often the the pro-life argument that's that's raised. I find this kind of strange that, you know, if you pick up like an ethics textbook, they'll have like all these pro-abortion arguments and they'll have like one pro-life argument. And it's often this guy, Don Marquis, and this, and I don't know why they choose this article. because I don't, I don't think it's a very strong defense. Maybe that's why it's the one chosen um, in the reproductive ethics class at Harvard Medical School. There were over 50 articles uh, on the syllabus and there was not a single article defending the, the pro-life position. So I, I went to the the instructor and I said, you know, why don't we, you know, even this, even this out a bit. And I'm very happy to recommend lots of different readings. So we can, we can really have a serious conversation about this. So the article here by Don Marquis, uh, the argument is that it is seriously wrong to kill an adult because the loss of one's life deprives one of all the experiences, activities, projects, and enjoyments that would have otherwise constituted one's future. So what's going on is you're basically robbing them of a future like our own. That's really Marquis' key argument. That's why abortion is wrong, according to him, is that we're robbing them of a future that is like our own, right? They could have the same experiences, activities, projects, and enjoyments that would otherwise have constituted one's future, right? So that abortion produces the same loss of a future in the case of a fetus, and therefore the killing of a human fetus is seriously wrong. What do we think about that argument? How does it differ from the one that I just gave? Presumably that argument wouldn't apply to um, say fetuses that were known to be significantly disabled and so wouldn't be able to enjoy the same kind of life that a, a normally functioning human would. Okay, yeah, very good, Kaylin. very good point. Okay, yeah, I think very insightful. I would say the key feature of this argument is that it does not focus on the goodness of life as I did, but on the goodness of future conscious experiences. And that the goodness will consist basically in those future experiences being pleasant, right? So two key, really key premises there, right? That focus on the goodness of future conscious experiences and those conscious future experiences being good because they are pleasant. I think the main problem here of making future consciousness and the expectation of pleasant mental experiences, the cornerstone of respect and dignity and moral status and rights is that it weakens the moral protections for the elderly, for those who are suffering, for the disabled, the mentally ill, the mentally handicapped. And it also make it the case that the older you are and the less of a pleasant future you have, the less you deserve protection. Right? Think about your 80-year-old grandparents. Right? They're running out of time. They're in the final chapter of their life. Right? If you are old, if you are ill, if you are mentally disabled and in pain, what protection, if any, do you have at that point? If you're not really going to have very many future conscious, pleasant experiences. So Marquis actually, I'm, I'm shocked by this. He actually follows out the implication of this. And he says that we want to allow the killing of these people. 
right? He's very consistent. I would find that to be, a, that's, that, for me, that's a really troubling conclusion, <laughs> okay? So I'm just amazed that this is this is often the pro-life argument that's presented in, in a lot of ethics te- textbooks, anthologies, is Don Markey's argument. I, I've never found it to be very persuasive or helpful. Were you, were you able to um, have, did you, were your suggestions taken for the, in the class that you took? Yeah, so I got, there's a woman named Louise King who teaches the reproductive ethics course at, at Harvard Medical School. And to her credit, she did add a couple a couple readings, yeah. So it was maybe 50 to two now, it's 50 to three, something like that. So we're, we're, we're you know, making a little bit of progress, so. But um, I'll bring up the twinning objection. So she makes a big deal out of twinning. Does anybody know what twinning is? I don't know, for some reason, she, she thinks this is like this knockdown argument in favor of abortion rights. What is what is twinning? That's where uh, identical twin separates. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So um, this can take place, right? So there is this period from the zygote stage until either 14 days or 16 days it's debated, you know, after fertilization. Uh, the argument is there's a lack of identity with the adult organism. So the idea is that uh, adults you know, like you and I are individuals, we're individual substances, but no embryo is a single individual substance because in its early stages, it can divide and give rise to twins. Uh, it is potentially two or more individuals, right? So the conclusion here that is drawn is that identity cannot jump that gap that separates the early stages of embryonic development from an adult individual. Uh, an embryo on this account is only a predecessor of an adult and therefore is not entitled to the same degree of respect as an adult. Well, I mean, what's going on with cloning, right? I would say cloning is the exact same thing as twinning. You and I can be cloned, right? We create a clone of, of every single one of us right now. Okay. Does that mean that you and I don't possess moral dignity or, or moral status or rights simply because we can be cloned? I'm saying no, not at all, right? So I think that's a really strong reductio argument, right? You're going to have to say that uh, the argument is that because embryos can undergo twinning, right, they can produce a monozygotic identical genetic twin. Therefore, they don't have dignity or moral status or rights. Well, that's true of you and I as well. So I, I think that's a pretty strong reductio argument. So I, I asked Louise if she, you know, lost her, if she would lose her dignity as well and her moral status. And and she had no response to that at all. That stopped her dead in her tracks. So the Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved.